Well, thank you, Bethel. It's wonderful to be invited back. I appreciate all those kind remarks by your pastor. I'm sure God will forgive him for those exaggerations he said about me and maybe forgive me for enjoying them too, huh? It's great to be back with you. I just rejoice in the the many wonderful things that's happening at your church, including this uh, recent uh, staff announcement or the new staff, senior staff member coming on on board. This is a wonderful uh, time in your church's history, and I know it'll be something that's going to bring great fruit uh, for you in the future. As uh, Steve mentioned, I have the privilege of working for an organization called the National Association of Neuthetic Counselors, or commonly referred to as NANC. And uh, people ask, what's the word neuthetic mean? It's a combination of two Greek words. Nous means mind. Tithime was a verb that means to put. And in the Bible, the term mind or heart are synonymous. It refers to the inner man. So biblical counseling or neuthetic counseling is counseling that goes for the heart, that changes people at the very core of their being, something I'll be talking about uh, in the message uh, tonight. And uh, so NANC, basically, when you think about neuthetic, you should think about biblical counseling. And NANC is primarily a certifying organization. Uh, we had an annual conference this past year in St. Louis at which uh, John MacArthur is one of our featured speakers. Uh, 1,200 people attended uh, the three- or four-day conference there. And we certify biblical counselors. And this last year, over 103 people completed training programs that met our minimum educational requirements. And they passed a theology exam, passed a counseling exam, and then they had their counseling personally supervised by uh, one of the leaders of NANC, uh, for a minimum of 50 hours of their counseling supervised. And uh, 56 of those people made it to St. Louis and were publicly recognized as uh, NANC certified counselors. I mention that to you because you may have family members or friends who are not part of a good Bible-believing church like Bethel, and uh, they may live in other parts of the country and their marriage may be in trouble or they may be personally struggling with issues in life. And you'd love for somebody to sit down and talk with them like, you know, one of your pastors would sit down and talk with you if you were hurting. And so if you go to the NANC website, www.nanc.org, you can hit the button, find a counselor, put in the state and the NANC certified counselors in those states will come up. We also provide training in biblical counseling. And we do that in five major cities across the United States. The closest one to where we are right here is St. Louis. And on the the information table out there, there's a brochure that talks about the training program that we're offering there. But you may know people that live in Jacksonville or um, uh, Houston, Texas, or Philadelphia, or Portland, Oregon. And uh, you may want to remind them of the kind of training that we're doing. I also want to just invite you personally to think about coming to South Carolina in October for the NANC annual conference. It begins with a Monday, one-day pre-conference dealing with counseling those in financial difficulty. Our presenter is uh, Dr. Howard Dayton, the the president and the founder of Crown Financial Ministries, the leading uh, financial counseling and training organization in Christian circles. And uh, man, what a timely topic that one is, huh? And uh, we had no idea when we set that topic what was going to be happening in our culture, but we're so glad we have it. And then that'll be followed by our annual conference, which goes Monday night, all day, Tuesday and Wednesday. This year, we're really pleased to have Dr. James McDonald from Harvest Bible Chapel as our featured speaker, along with some of the NANC favorites that you see pictured there. And you'd be welcome to come to any of those events. In fact, I hope when you leave that you'll consider going by the information table out in this area. And at the left part of the table, there's brochures for our annual conference, including the pre-conference and also information about the training that we'll be offering in St. Louis. And I hope you'll consider going by 
and picking up uh, some of that material. Now, I have the privilege of speaking to you on the subject of freedom from staying the same. And I love your theme, this freedom uh, theme. And I love the assignment that uh, Pastor Steve has given me, speaking on the subject of uh, freedom from staying the same. And before we get into that, could I just lead us in a brief prayer, asking for God to make these truths real in each one of our hearts. Now, Father, as the psalmist prayed, I would pray, open thou our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from thy law. In Christ's name I pray, amen. Freedom from staying the same. There are five truths that summarize how every one of us can be changing and growing and being different people. We're different in many, many ways, but one of the ways every one of us is similar is that every one of us has things in our personal lives that we wish were different. Every one of us has things in our marriages, as good as they might be, there are things that we wish were different. We may have wonderful children in many, many ways, but we wish there were things that were different in them. From the child's perspective, they may have recognized that they have wonderful parents and they've been blessed by God with the parenting they have, but they wish that their parents were different. Those of us who are involved in in the biblical counseling movement recognize that counseling assumes the need for change. And on this, there's general agreement regardless of philosophical assumptions. But once you move beyond that basic philosophical assumption that counseling assumes the need for change, there is huge diversity. If you read any kind of counseling literature or if you pay attention to what's on the popular media and radio, TV, the print media, uh, there's huge diversity around issues of how to change, where to change, into what to change, why to change, who's to change. And if you pay attention to what we're being told in the, in the popular uh, communication devices today, we're being told that for most of us, our problems can be traced back to syndromes or addictions or we've got chemical imbalances or some of us are struggling with repressed memories. And that's why we are what we are and why we can't change what we're struggling with in many cases. And if you listen, if those are the, if those are the problems, then what are the solutions? Well, today we're being told by multiple voices that what most of us need, we need more self-sufficiency or more self-actualization or more self-empowerment or we need more self-esteem or more self-awareness or more self-mastery or some of us need a self-cure or maybe we need our felt needs met. By the way, in that list of proposed solutions on how to be free from sameness, did you notice one word being repeated over and over again? self now, folks, just think about that for a little bit. I, I, I pondered that a while back, and I thought, no, wait a minute. The cure for Randy's problems is more of Randy? Come on. How trite. And what I want to say to each of you that are followers of the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that the Bible is God's book and it's a book of answers, not a book of questions. I want you to understand that God has clearly addressed each of these issues in his word. In fact, there are five phrases that summarize the change and growth process. And I'm going to try to repeat those and explain them clear enough tonight that by the time you leave in just a little bit, If you listen pretty well, you can have them memorized and you can leave here in just a little bit knowing how to be free from sameness and understand the key biblical principles on how you can be changing and growing. Here's the first one. God wants you to be changing. 
God wants you to be changing. Now, if you have your Bible, let me have you take it and open with me to Ephesians chapter 4. And I want to demonstrate these principles to you from this particular chapter of the Scriptures. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4. You know, we call 1 Corinthians 13 the love chapter of the Bible. And many people say 1 Corinthians 15 is the resurrection chapter of the Bible. And we could say 1 Corinthians 7 is the sex chapter of the Bible. Well, I would say to you that 1 Corinthians, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 4 is the change chapter of the Bible. And if you really want to understand God's plans for growing and changing, I'd encourage you to delve deeply and read carefully and meditatively the book of Ephesians, paying particular attention to chapters 1, 2, and 3, understanding those truths, and then what comes in chapter 4. Now, God wants you to be changing. I say that to you because the Ephesians had been richly blessed in Christ because of what he had done for them in salvation. And it was so wonderful tonight seeing the observance of the Lord's supper table and be reminded that Christ willingly gave his body to pay the penalty for our sins. And he did that on the cross of Calvary. He shed his blood, meaning he was willing to die in our behalf. And Jesus Christ, in being our willing substitute, paid the penalty for our sin that we deserve to pay for our sin. Because if every one of us got what we deserve for our sin... Even though we all recognize we could sin more if we wanted to. But if we all got what we deserve for our sin, we'd all spend eternity apart from God, being punished forever in the lake of fire, which the Bible calls hell. But Jesus Christ was our substitute. He paid the the penalty for us and made it possible for God the Father to show mercy to us righteously. And I encourage you, if you want to understand that more, read carefully and thoughtfully Ephesians chapters 1, 2, and 3. The key phrase in those verses is the little phrase, in him. And those chapters outline multiple blessings that are ours in Christ. That's the key phrase in chapters 1, 2, and 3. The Ephesians have been richly blessed in Christ. But the Ephesians had also been blessed with Paul and Timothy as their pastor. I mean, can you imagine waking up in the first century and getting ready for church on Sunday morning and saying to your spouse, Well, I wonder what Brother Paul's got for us this morning. Can you imagine marching off to church to hear the Apostle Paul? And when Paul left, he stayed in Ephesus uh, twice as long as he did in any other single place. When Paul left there, he sent Timothy, to be his protege, to be the pastor of the church. Everybody would acknowledge that from the standpoint of pastoral leadership, the church at Ephesus, the believers there, had it the best. And yet, brothers and sisters, this same church that had been so richly blessed in Christ, chapters 1, 2, and 3, and that had Paul and Timothy as their pastors, they were told to be growing and changing. And if they, if God expected them to be doing that, then certainly he would expect you and me to that. In fact, notice how Ephesians chapter 4, the change chapter in the Bible, just drips with an emphasis on changing and growing. Chapter 4 verse 1 says, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Verse 13 says, we're to keep changing until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. To a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. Verse 15 says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. That is, we're to change. We're to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. Verse 17 says, this I say there and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their minds. That is, he's calling them to change. Here are the verses that are so meaningful to me. 
and that summarized the process so well. He says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which has been corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and you be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. That's the change process. It even spills over into the first verse in chapter 5, which says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. Over and over and over again, God is saying that we are to be changing and growing. Now, this is not just something that shows up in the book of Ephesians. In fact, other scriptures emphasize this as well. Uh, For example, help me finish this verse, will you? 2 Corinthians 5, 17 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a... Yeah, new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. And I want you to know that if you are a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you've repented of your sins and your pride and your arrogance, and you've trusted Christ and you've confessed your sin and trusted Christ as your Savior, and you have been born again and you're one of God's children, that God wants you to change. This is a a principle that runs all through the Scriptures, particularly the New Testament. Now, Many of you would say, well, Brother Andy, I know I need to change. I want to change. And many of you would say, you know, I've wanted to change, tried to change, but I failed to change so many times that I've begun wondering, is change really possible for me? Some of us would say, I've raised my hand in response to the preaching of the scriptures. Some of us would say, I've walked an aisle in response to the preaching. Some would say, I've prayed at the front of a church or something. Many of us in our private devotions would say, I've repented of my sins and promised God, I'll never do it again. And yet 48 or 72 hours hadn't gone by until we'd done it again. And in our heart of hearts, we wonder, yes, people can change. I know Christ can change people. But I'm beginning to wonder, can he change me in this area where I most need to change? Well, I want to encourage you with the fact and by acknowledging that change is hard. But brothers and sisters in Christ, change can take place because God's commands assume God's enablement. Think about that. God's commands assume God's enablement. The Bible describes the God of heaven as a God who's loving, kind, merciful, caring, tenderhearted, and he would be none of those things. If he commanded you and me to change and we wanted to change, tried to change, but couldn't change. I mean, the very character of God hangs on this. Let that truth, let your theology encourage you at this point. You can be different. You can be free from sameness. You do not have to go on living the way you have been by God's grace. A moment ago, I told you that Ephesians chapter 4 is the change chapter of the Bible. And that's our text for tonight. But let me just take you to another book of the Bible. The Ephesians chapter 4 talks about changing and growing and it emphasizes our part. In the change and growth process. There's another book in the Bible that talks about changing and growing. That's the book of Philippians. And Philippians talks about changing and growing, but it emphasizes God's part. Would, would you notice these, these three verses from Philippians? Listen, please. Philippians 1, 6 says, I am confident of this very thing, that he who hath begun a good work in you, he will perform it until the day of Christ Jesus. Or think about this one. Philippians 2, 13 says... It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And here's one you all know, Philippians 4.13. Help me finish it. I can do 
all things through Christ who strengthens me. Now, brothers and sisters, think about that. That well-known verse, by the way, is right in the immediate context of talking about handling the ups and downs of life in the area of finances. Paul said, I can do all things. I can handle the times of abundance, and I can handle the times when things are really, really tight. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That well-known promise is not teaching that through Christ strengthening me, I can go outside here and lift up the side of the van I happen to be driving right now. That's not what that's talking about. What it means is when it comes to thinking and acting the way God wants us to, according to his word, when it comes to changing in the areas where God has made it clear he wants us to be changing and growing, I can do, you can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. What that means is, folks, there is great hope for those of us who want to change. There is great hope for you tonight. You do not have to go on being the kind of person you are. No Christian, thinking biblically, will excuse their behavior by saying, well, that's just the way I am. Well, if if that's the way you are, change. You don't have to go on being like that. And a godly Christian, a Christian thinking biblically, cannot justify their, their behavior just by saying, well, that's the way I am when God is commanding us to change. In fact, let me just show you one of the passages of Scripture that just that ministers to me so much when, when I, I'm struggling in areas where I know God wants me to be more like Christ and where I, I need to, to be more of, of, a, of a godly leader and I need to deal with habits in areas where I'm struggling. And sometimes when my own faith wavers. Let me just show you a passage of Scripture that helps me so much. This is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10. Notice what the Word of God says. Do you not know? That the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers shall inherit the kingdom of God. Now, a couple of things I want you to notice. First of all, I want you to understand that this passage is talking about what in our culture is called addictive behaviors. All right? For example, uh, nobody becomes known as a thief because they shoplifted one time, all right? Or they were given too much change and didn't give it back. You do not become known as a thief that way. Nobody becomes known as an adulterer because you were unfaithful to your spouse one time. Nobody becomes known as a drunkard because you got smashed at last year's uh, New Year's Eve party. Nobody becomes known as a homosexual because of uh, one uh, act of immorality in that area. These, this, these verses are talking about sinful behaviors that have been repeated so long, so many times, that the person has become known for the sin. It's talking about addictive behaviors. And we happen to live in a culture which, quite frankly, really has no real answers for addictive behaviors. Do you realize, folks, that apart from Jesus Christ changing somebody on the inside and changing their heart, that the very best that secular counseling can do or Christian counseling that's using secular methods and methodology and so forth, the very best that they can do is just rearrange somebody's flesh? It's only through Christ and what Christ does in a person's life, using his inspired and inerrant and sufficient word, that people are changed. 
So the scripture says people who live habitually sinful lives will not inherit the kingdom of God. All right. And I love this next verse. Look at this one. And such were some of you. Not anymore. Such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Brothers and sisters, let me say it to you again. God wants you to be changing. And he will help you do it as you follow these principles that I'm going to show you from Ephesians chapter 4. Well, number two, God wants you to be changing to be more like his son. God is not interested in just any kind of change. In fact, let me just draw your attention again to Ephesians chapter 4, what I'm calling the change chapter in the Bible. And will you notice how often whenever God talks about changing, he makes it clear he wants you to be changing toward godliness. He wants you to be changing to become more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice this emphasis in chapter 4, verse 1. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Uh, For a long time, that verse kind of puzzled me, and I did some studying, and I think I know what it means. Let me illustrate it this way. How many of you call yourself a Christian? This verse says, act like it. That's the point. You call yourself a Christian, act like Christ. You know, the word Christian means little Christ follower of Christ. And that's what it's saying. Be a follower of Christ. Grow and changing. Look at verse 15. It says, but speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is the head, even Christ. God isn't interested in just any kind of change. He wants all of us to be growing, to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24 says, put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Jesus Christ and his word are righteous, holy, and true. Verse 32 says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And chapter 5, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children. Now, again, I want to point out to you that this matter of changing and growing is not just Ephesians chapter 4. It's all through the Bible. Here's a couple of other familiar passages. Romans 8, 28. Now, my guess is that most of you have this verse underlined in your Bible, and probably over half of you in the service tonight could quote this verse. That's a very wonderful thing. My guess, further guess would be that probably there's not 15% of you that have a verse 29 underlined, and I'll bet there's not 10% of you that can quote verse 29. I hope I'm wrong, all right? But these verses go together. And what I want to encourage you to do, if verse 29 is not underlined in your Bible, when you get home tonight, get it underlined. And if you can quote verse 28, but not verse 29, I want to encourage you to change that and get both of them memorized. Look at what the scriptures are talking about. God wants you to be changing to be like his son. Romans 8, 28 says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love him, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he did foreknow, he also did predestinate to become conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn of many brethren. My brothers and sisters, listen to me. If you quote Romans 8, 28 without connecting it with verse 29, you will probably misapply the wonderful truth that's taught there. What Romans 8, 28 and 29 is teaching is that the God of heaven, our, our Savior, our, 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 our God, our, the Father, is working in our lives now. And whatever's happening in your life, whether it's trials in your marriage, personal struggles, maybe with employment, finances, kids, parents, health issues, whatever it might be. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, somehow, some way, God wants to use that trial in your life, whatever it is right now. 
to help you to be growing and to take one more step for becoming like the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 8, 28 and 29 is teaching that God the Father loves God the Son so much that he wants heaven populated with people that are just like him. And our time on earth is just a ramp up to the time when we will see him and be like him. That's what that scriptures are teaching about. God wants us to be growing, to be like Christ. Think also about Colossians 1.28. Here is the Apostle Paul's philosophy of ministry statement. He says, we proclaim him, admonishing every man, nuthetically confronting every man, and teaching every man with all wisdom. Why, Paul? That we may present every man complete in Christ. Now, what, that's, what this is teaching us then is this. That the model for life and ministry is, not, is to be the Lord Jesus Christ and not your favorite parent or preacher or missionary or counselor or school president. I mean, there's nothing wrong with us acknowledging people have influenced our lives. But brothers and sisters, we should talk a lot more about Jesus Christ than we talk about people who've ministered in his name. Christ is to be the focus of our lives. And these scriptures are teaching that the expectation is that you will be more and more like Christ in your thoughts and in your motives and in your actions. That's what God wants you to be doing. He wants you to be changing. He wants me to be changing, to be more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ in the way we think and our motives and our actions. Well, you should feel, if you're following the outline, you should feel the tension beginning to build. God wants you to be changing, to be more like his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, how do you do that? Well, if you have your Bible open, look with me at Ephesians 4, verse 22. Notice this important verse. He says that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. All right. Third truth I want you to take home tonight is this. God wants you to be changing, to be more like his son. How? By putting off the old man. Verse 22. Now let's take that little verse apart, okay? When the Bible uses the phrase old man or old self, it's referring to the habits, plural, the habits of thinking and acting that your corrupt nature adopted before you were saved. So when the Bible talks about old man, old nature, it's talking about that constellation of attitudes, attitudes, or attitudes, responses, um, uh, behaviors, all, all that that just kind of characterized your life B.C., before Christ. And God says we're to lay that aside. In fact, the phrase lay aside means to put off, to strip off, as in the case of old filthy clothes. And it's a, it's a phrase that clearly emphasizes personal responsibility for change. Now, this is significant, uh, talking about freedom from sameness, because some of you may have come from a theological background where you've been taught that the way a person changes and grows, basically you can't do anything about it, and, and all we can do is just let go and let God. Listen to me, folks. The scriptures don't teach that. I mean, Ephesians 4.22 that we're looking at is very clear. God says, and you lay aside the old self, which has been corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit. Now, I've already shown you three verses from the book of Philippians that says God will help us as we do that. But each of us has a personal responsibility for laying aside the old habit. Now, you'll notice the Bible describes the old nature as being corrupt, spoiled, contaminated, rotten, perverted, or evil. 
And you'll notice that that Ephesians 4.22 uses this significant word that says that we're to lay aside the old self, which is controlled by lust. This is a very interesting word. It's the word epithumia, and it refers to a strong desire of any kind that motivates behavior. Let me draw a distinction for you between a lust and a desire, all right? I'm going to start over here. We're going to end over there. All right, let me, let me do it this way. Um, how many of you have a desire for money? Well, that's an interesting response. I see some hands go up right away and some hands go up and come down and some people are just kind of looking at me like, now, I'm just getting to know this guy that pastor says he like. Is he the kind of guy that would pick somebody out of the audience and then embarrass them, you know? I wouldn't do that. Maybe it's pastor Steve would sometime, but I wouldn't do that, you know? I know he wouldn't do it either, but All right, here's, the, here's what I want you to think about. I ask you, how many of you have a desire for money? Well, personally, if somebody asked me, my hand's up. And I want to encourage you to think about the fact that if someone says to you, do you have a desire for money? I mean, put your hand up. There's nothing wrong with having a desire for money. I mean, think about it. In our culture, if you don't have some money, um, you're not going to be able to take care of your own needs, your own needs of the family. You're sure not going to be much of a positive witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. You won't be able to support your church and all the wonderful things that are happening here and the outreach in both your community and around the world and so forth. I mean, if you don't have some money in our culture, you're really in a tough spot. So I just want to say to all of you, regardless of your age, if anybody says to you, do you have a desire for money? I mean, put up your hand. There's nothing wrong with that. In fact, I would argue one of the ways that we are made in the image of God is that we are people with multiple desires, just like God is a God of multiple desires desires. But it's interesting. A theologian writing about a hundred years ago said this, something to this effect. He said, what gets most of us into trouble is not what we want, but how badly we want it. And if a desire for money grows and develops and becomes so strong that it's motivating your thinking, it's motivating your behavior, it has moved from being a desire to what the Bible calls a lust. It's an epithumia, is the Greek word, it's a strong, passionate desire that motivates behavior. And the book of Ephesians is saying to us that part of what we're all to lay aside, that part of that old man business is that the number one dominant characteristic of the old man is that it's driven by feelings. It's driven by passions. It's driven by desires on steroids. And that's what leads to sin. In fact, you can just think about it. I ask you how many of you desire for money, but you could put in almost anything of there. How many of you have a desire for respect? How many of you have a desire to be loved? How many of you have a desire for, for a mate? How many of you have a desire for a, a nicer car or a better job or, you know, just, I mean, there's all kinds of things we can put into that. And for what gets most of us into trouble is not what we want. It's how badly we want it. And when our lusts start driving our thinking, start driving our behavior, then the scripture says it is deceitful. And rather than bringing us joy, it brings us heartache. You know why? Because there's a price tag for sin. The psalmist says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. Proverbs, the writer of Proverbs says, the way of a transgressor is hard. 
Paul writes in Romans 6, 7, and 8 and basically points out to us, the more you feed the flesh, the more it wants. We're to lay aside the old self. God wants you to be changed and be more like his son by putting off the old self. Now, <clears throat> that's not a, we, we, the Bible doesn't call us just to put off the old self. It calls us to put on the new self. That's Ephesians 4.24. Would you look with me at that verse, please? Verse 24 says, And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of the truth. Now, when the Bible talks about the new self or new man, it's referring to the habits of thinking, the motivations, and the behavior that emulate Christ. That's what he wants us to put on. Christ-like thinking, Christ-like behavior. Biblical thinking, biblical behavior. To put on means, as in the case of clean clothes, it means to adopt new ways of thinking and acting. And it emphasizes, once again, personal responsibility. Brothers and sisters, if you're a Christian, you have a responsibility to put off the old man and to put on the new man. God will help you, but you have a responsibility to do that. And righteousness, holiness, and truth describe Jesus Christ and his word, the Holy Scriptures. The new self that God wants us to put on will be oriented toward pleasing God by obeying his word. Just as the old man is feeling-oriented, this, this man is commandment-oriented. Just as the, the old man is li- focused on pleasing self, the new man is focused on pleasing Christ. And if we're a Christian, if you're a Christian tonight, every one of us is like on a continuum, and God wants us to be continually taking steps and moving in this direction. It's a process. It's a, none of us have arrived. None of us are perfect. We've all got room to change and grow, just like the Ephesians did. God calls each of us to be growing and changing, to be like his son. Now, the question then is, how do you do that? How do you do that? Well, the fifth phrase that I hope you remember is this one. God wants you to be changing, to be more like his son, by putting off the old man, putting on the new man, as a result of a changed mind, a changed heart. Look with me at Ephesians 4.23. If you don't have this verse underlined, or these three verses, 22, 23, and 24, I'd really encourage you to underline them, meditate on them, memorize them. But look right now at verse 23. It's one of the shortest verses in the New Testament, but it is just pregnant. It's just packed with meaning. Look at verse 23. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, to understand that verse, it's important that you understand that in the New Testament, the term mind is synonymous with heart, soul, spirit. And each of those are to be viewed as the center of thought, the center of understanding, the center of belief, motives, and actions. When the Bible talks about the mind, you know, know, haven't we all heard somebody say after a particular presentation, and maybe something a little bit different was presented, haven't you heard somebody walk out and say, Something like, well, I believe it with my head, but not with my heart yet. How many of you heard somebody say something like that? Like that? Okay. In, in our Western culture, we like to separate, you know, mind and heart. Look at me for just a minute. In the New Testament times, the term mind and heart were synonyms. Just like soul and spirit were synonyms. Soul, spirit, mind, heart. They're just all talking about the same. It's talking about the inner man. The Bible talks about inner man issues and outer man issues. Talks about heart, soul, mind, inner issues, conduct out here. All right? What God is saying is 
God wants us to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. He wants us to be changed at the core of our being. This is the inner person. This inner person is the real you that God sees and that he interacts with. The Old Testament says that God, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks with on the heart. Now, notice in this verse, God says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. The term renewed means to be rejuvenated, to be made youthful, to be renovated. A few years ago, I was doing a counseling case with a husband and wife uh, who had come for help with their marriage. And at one point uh, in the process of working with them early on, I was teaching them a little bit of what I'm talking with you about tonight. And I wanted to illustrate what does it mean to be renovated in the spirit or renewed in the spirit of our mind. And I said, the word renewed means to be renovated. And I said, what would happen if we were to renovate your kitchen? Well, apparently the lady had been thinking about it because she had an answer right now. She said, well, if you had to renovate my kitchen, she said, you'd come in and take out everything that's in there right now and put brand new stuff back in. And I said to her, that is a great answer. You know, renovation always means significant change. I mean, you know, it means the refrigerator, stove, the dishwasher got to go. The wall treatment comes down. The light fixtures come down. Flooring comes up. And when it's all out, it's renovated, right? No. When it's all out, it's an ugly mess. But when it's all out and there's new wall treatment, new flooring, new, new ceiling treatment, new refrigerator, stove, dishwater, counters, cabinets, and so forth. When the old is gone and new is in its place, it's been renovated. Renovation always means significant change. And listen to me, brothers and sisters. This may explain why some of you who've wanted to change and have tried to change have failed to change. Because God says he wants us to be renewed in the spirit of our mind. The root word there is to be renovated in our thinking. And if we're going to be truly renovated in our thinking, we're going to have to get pretty familiar with saying things like, I was wrong, I sinned, please forgive me, thank you for being patient with me, please pray for me. And we will have to say those things over and over again, particularly to the people who know us best including our families. And it just seems like for many of us, those words just struggle to come out of our mouth with people we know well because we know the things they ought to be saying to us, maybe too. And I've discovered that the reason I think many people who've wanted to change and have tried to change are still in bondage to sameness is because in reality, they've not allowed their thinking to be truly renovated by the Scriptures. You remember in Isaiah, at one point, where God is speaking to Isaiah, and he says, as far as the heavens are above the earth, so far are my ways above your ways. Remember that passage? Folks, in Ephesians 4.23, in effect, God is saying to us, come on up, come on up. Big-time thinking, big-time change. Could it be that with you, the reason you've really not changed, the reason you're not having victory in the areas that are binding you and enslaving you, is because you've really not humbled yourself to the Scriptures? You really haven't allowed God and His Word to change the way you think, the way you look at life, the way you handle the problems of life and so forth? The fact is, maybe maybe some of you, we could say it this way. You've resisted the hard changes that God would make if you allowed your thinking to be renovated. Even though in your heart of hearts, you you would admit that God's changes are always improvements. And while you've resisted renovation, 
you've settled for remodeling. And there is a difference. If you remodel a kitchen, what would you do? Well, paint the ceiling, change the wallpaper, maybe change the knobs on some of the doors, put a new veneer over the countertops, get rid of the old stove, buy a new one, clean up the old refrigerator. When you remodel, it's just the old made to look better. Folks, listen to me. There is a place for remodeling when it comes to kitchens. But there's not a place for remodeling in the life of a Christian when it comes to your thinking and allowing your thinking and your attitudes and your motives to be absolutely transformed by God and His Word, His principles under the power of the Holy Spirit. To change the metaphor, let me say it this way. God is saying to us in His Word that we do not need a tune-up. We need an overhaul. And it means drastic change. Now, notice in this verse it says that God changes us, that be renewed in the spirit of your mind. I love this phrase. The spirit of the mind is that which gives the mind both its bent and its material of thought. It does not refer to some superficial change of opinion on points of doctrine or practice. Let me see if I can explain it to you this way. I'm going to have to assume uh, that all of you understand something about what could be called the depravity of man. But just b- briefly, it means that all of us come into the world, we're born, we come into the world, and we are bent towards sin. We are sinners by nature and by choice, all right? And we're just bent that direction. For example, you never have to teach a child how to throw a temper tantrum, all right? Nobody has to teach a child how to lie, cheat, or steal, right? Why? They're just bent in that direction. I mean, kind has produced kind, all right? I mean, we're all just like that, okay? Now, here's what the Scripture is saying. When the Bible talks about being renewed in the spirit of your mind, it's talking about the bent of your thinking. Now, catch this. God says, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. What the Scriptures are teaching is that as we are born again through justification and as we grow and change through progressive sanctification, that's what I've been talking to you about tonight, as we submit our minds to the the instruction of the Scriptures and as we seek to obey it and the Holy Spirit works in our lives, what happens over a period of time is that the spirit of our mind, the bent of our thinking changes. And we come to a point where the things we once loved, we now hate. Things we once hated, we now love. And I wish right now that time would allow, we could just stop right now and take 15, 20 minutes because I'm sure all across this room there are people right now who could stand up because if, if somebody would have told many of you five, seven, ten years ago that on a beautiful summer evening in northwest Indiana, you would be taking time away from your home and your family and your hobby to go to a church service and listen to some preacher talk about from the Bible and everything. If somebody would have told you you'd be doing that five, seven, ten years ago, you would have had some choice language for them and probably some kind of a description of their family tree. But here you are. And what that usually indicates is that there has been a change in the spirit of our mind. Brothers and sisters, that gets at the issue. Will I always struggle with what I'm struggling with now? And I think the answer is, in many cases, probably not. In some cases, maybe, yes. But as you change in the spirit of your mind, the battle will be different by God's grace.
Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Now, being changed in the spirit of our mind changes our habits. A habit allows us to do things automatically, unconsciously, skillfully, and comfortably. Renewed thinking will lead to putting off the old self, that's dehabituation, and putting on the new self, which is rehabituation. One cannot simply break a habit, he must replace it. And your goal is to have your thinking patterns change so drastically that you will learn to automatically, unconsciously, skillfully, and comfortably act like Jesus would act if he was in your shoes. And that, my brothers and sisters, is real change. That is real freedom. By God's grace, for his glory. That's why it's so important that you read your Bible. That's why it's so important that you memorize key verses and meditate on it. That's why you come faithfully to small groups and public worship and serve, to, to learn God's ways, to learn how to think the way God wants us to think and how to act the way he wants us to act. Well, if I just had to summarize what I've been talking to you tonight, it'd be just this little simple diagram that I've drawn for people hundreds and hundreds of times in the counseling room, little stick figure. How do we change and grow? Three key parts of the process. We've got to put off the old self, and the old self is feeling-oriented. And the old self is motivated by lust, motivated by feelings. There's nothing wrong with having feelings. There is something wrong with living by your feelings. But God wants us to do more than just stop doing what's wrong. He wants us to start doing what's right. He wants us to put on the new self. And the new self is scripture-oriented and is motivated by a love of Christ. And the key to the put-off, put-on process is changing the way you think. Allowing your heart to be changed, the inner man to be changed. By God and His Word. Brothers and sisters, there's freedom available from sameness to followers of Christ. And tonight as you go, I hope the words will be ringing in your heart. God wants you to be changing. To be more like His Son. By putting off the old man and putting on the new man as a result of transformed thinking. That's how you can be free. That's how you can change. Bow with me, please, in prayer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed, and just before I pray, I hope in the quietness of this moment that you will cry out to God in personal prayer, asking God to help you put into practice what you've learned from his word tonight, and that you would gain freedom from sameness. I would say that if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, please don't leave tonight. After we dismiss, please come to the front. One of us will be glad to sit down and talk with you more thoroughly about how you can know Christ as your Savior and walk with Him. Father, I pray that you'll use.